0: Hi, Don Thompson here with another podcast for you today. This, I I think, is a pretty important podcast. I'm going to talk about the nature of suffering. Why do we suffer, and is there a way out of suffering? Mindfulness directly relates to this, because mindfulness really is, in essence, a path to at least attempt to move away from human suffering. So in a sense, what I'm proposing um, through mindfulness, although not necessarily the definitive answer to ending suffering, it's perhaps a way to mitigate suffering or alleviate suffering by taking a look at our lives and various aspects of our lives, you know, through a mindful perspective. Now, mindfulness really comes from Buddhism. And the more recent flavor of mindfulness is a secular mindfulness. That's really, you might say, separate from Buddhism. And this new flavor of mindfulness comes out of psychology, modern psychology. And that's what I studied in my mindfulness training. These were psychologists or are psychologists that are training us in mindfulness But still, mindfulness does arise out of Buddhism and what's known as the Four Noble Truths of the Buddha. And the Buddha taught roughly 2,500 years ago or so, and he talked about these Four Noble Truths. And the first Noble Truth being that life is suffering. And the second Noble Truth being that there is a cause of suffering, and that that is desire or craving. And that the end of suffering comes from an end to desire or craving. And then he goes on to describe the Eightfold Path that leads us out of this desire, this craving, this sense of attachment. And so these um, various aspects of the Eightfold Path have to do with various perspectives uh, that he called Right View, Right Mindfulness right concentration, right livelihood, right intention, right speech, right effort, and right action. So the Eightfold Path is what can lead away from suffering, according to the Buddha. And mindfulness would be, in in, in essence, an aspect of the Eightfold Path. And perhaps some would say that it's the most important or Uh, influential of the Eightfold Path. Now, I don't want to go down that path necessarily and talk about levels of importance, but certainly mindfulness is, um, well, you know, a good way to take a look at suffering and can be seen as a really, you know, quite a good attempt to at least move us away from suffering, from a mindset, a, a state of mind related to suffering to mitigate suffering. But how do we mitigate suffering? And uh, let's, let's go back to what the root cause is. If the root cause is, as the Buddha said, desire, well, what are we desiring? What is it that we want? We're craving something. We want to have something that we don't have. And if we don't have the sense of needing things that we don't have, There would be a lack of desire and hence a lack of suffering, you might say. Now, some will critique this immediately and say, well, what are you talking about? We need to eat. We need to have ambitions. We need to make a living. Uh, We need to have goals. So desire is part and parcel of life. So how can you get rid of desire? It's impossible. What are you talking about? Why try? So in essence, what mindfulness is doing is really telling us we don't necessarily need to get rid of desire. And this is an important point. We're not trying to eliminate it. What we're trying to do with mindfulness is step back from desire and observe it mindfully. We observe it moving through us. And rather than becoming attached to it, rather than becoming attached to the sense of being a self, that's experiencing this desire, we take a step back and we notice things more like, you might say, noticing the still air. We notice things more from the standpoint of of a presence, a mindful presence, you might say. And this changes your perspective on things if you look at it this way, if you look at your existence this way, your life this way. What you're doing, really, is taking a step back and looking at the world in a more mindful way. And uh, as we've detailed early on in the podcast, we're looking at different aspects of emotions, of thoughts, of the physical being, of a human being. And we're looking at them mindfully. We're looking at the breath, fundamentally, in terms of uh, our meditation on the breath. And we're looking at these things in a sense in a detached fashion we're not really identifying with them per se we're looking at them as things that move through us or are things that can be looked at mindfully and observed and what this does ironically is it frees you up to live more fully this isn't this isn't limiting you at all because what it keeps you from doing really is... Um, by you, you're not getting attached to the outcomes of desires. You can take a step back from your desire and see that uh, you know you, you will have a desire for a certain outcome. If that outcome doesn't occur, it's okay. From a mindful perspective, you don't have to fret about it. And if you don't want to, you know if you don't get what you desire, and you don't get the outcome from your desire. Um, If you're not attached to it, uh, then you don't necessarily need to suffer from it so much because you, you aren't necessarily attached to the outcome. What I'm saying here is that mindfulness at its core has this sense of detachment. We're freeing ourselves from this chronic need to overcome what it is we desire. It's not that we don't desire. It's not that we don't have ambitions or goals or whatever. But again, we observe these things and we let them pass through us and we change our perspective on it and we don't necessarily get so caught up in it. And, and really, we, 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 we change or look at what our intention is behind these things. So what it has to do with, uh, you know, all this mindfulness stuff, as I've described in other podcasts, is really you come to a sense of fluidity in your in your life, about moving into a state where you sense the fluidity of life and that it's flowing through you, you might say in a kind of a New Agey way, you go with the flow. You get into, uh, you're in sync with the natural rhythm and flow of life. You might say of nature itself. Um, so what you're what you're doing here is you're you're switching to a different perspective in terms of where your motivation, where your intention is coming from. You might say you're looking to your higher self or you're looking to a sense of no self. Regardless, what you're trying to get in touch with is the flow, the natural flow of life, and you're allowing it to occur and you're not necessarily critiquing it. You're not judging it. Uh, Now, I did get into uh, another podcast related to critical theory and critical thinking. It might seem to contradict this a little bit, and it does in a sense, but part of what mindfulness does and what Buddhism does is, is it allows you to accept the inherent contradictions of yourself and of life and to actually embrace them. Because one thing you don't want to do, I believe, is to get into a battle with yourself, Regarding various aspects of yourself, you know, to get into uh, this conflict, this inner conflict is incredibly time consuming and it wastes a lot of energy battling yourself. So, a lot of what this battle has to do with is this feeling that we need to be consistent. We need to have a consistency to the way that we act, the way that we think, the way that we feel. Our belief systems need to be consistent. And, um, that you need to be the same person uh, in a consistent fashion. But if you look at life this way, you're you're sort of trapped, really, you know, in this consistency. If you're more fluid, you can move through life in a fluid way uh, and in an unethical way. I'm not saying to be unethical by being fluid. I'm not saying to suddenly move into a state where you're lying and cheating and stealing and all that stuff because it might be a benefit to you in the short term. That's not good. That's not what I'm talking about. You don't want to harm people. But what fluidity allows you to do is to not be so attached to the sense of, I am this person. I am this thing. So you can be something in one moment in a way, And then you can be something else in a different moment, in the next moment, really. You don't really have to become a fixed person, a fixed thing, in terms of the way that you think and the way that you perceive things. The fixed self is really just an idea. It's an idea that that was thought of by a variety of people, including yourself, but probably including people like your parents and your siblings and the people you're with and your friends, and so on. They like you to be consistent. And they have expectations about what you're going to be. And sometimes uh, we want to be that thing. And we want to be that identity. And that's okay. Because there's a sort of security in being a particular identity. But it's the clinging to an identity. And this gets back to the four noble truths. What we're really clinging to is a sense of a fixed self. And the fixed self is really a recipe for attachment and a recipe for suffering. And so if your self is not so fixed, if you're a little bit more fluid, you can drop certain attitudes and ideas fairly quickly. So let's say if you're in a funk or if you're in a depression or uh, if you're not feeling that great mentally or whatever, you can just stop. You can reflect on it a moment mindfully and just let it go. You can let it go and you can turn your attention to something else. You can turn your attention to the light as it's glimmering on the windowsill. You can look at life more or less really like the artist looks at life, you know, sort of as a palette of light, you know, really. That's the way the artist looks at the world. Um, It's really not a conceptual way of looking at the world. You're not laying out a bunch of concepts about the world on reality. You're letting it be as it is. So all of these ideas that we have about life and reality and what it should be and what it shouldn't be, uh, we're very quick to want to create conceptual frameworks about life and philosophies and all of that stuff. And sometimes these things can be very useful. I use them all the time. Uh, I call them frameworks, ways of looking at, at life. And I've discussed this on other podcasts and they can be very useful. But it's sort of, you know, like putting a lens on a camera. You put one lens on the camera and you look through the world that way. And then you put another lens on the same camera. And you look at the world through a little bit of a different lens. But that doesn't necessarily mean the world is that view that you have through that lens. These are views These are ways of looking at things. And this realization doesn't mean that these ways and views and all of this framework stuff is bad. They're just appropriate in different contexts for different things you might want to do. Buddhism has this idea of taking refuge. And what refuge means uh, to the Buddhists, or to really any belief system, is that you're you're trying to protect yourself from the downsides of what can be the danger of this kind of thinking, this kind of thinking that I've just been talking about in terms of frameworks and all of that stuff. And uh, I've talked about this in other podcasts as well. So the danger of this kind of thinking is you might believe that nothing really matters, that it's all just a bunch of conceptual frameworks and there is no meaning. And and you get to a point where you come to a sort of a nihilistic viewpoint. And that's really not the right way to go, in my opinion. But what happens if you're really practicing mindfulness, in the way that I would suggest you practice mindfulness, is that there comes a point when you reach, you might say, a naturally arising state of compassion for yourself and for others. And mindfulness is very explicit about this in the in the practice. The practice of RAIN, for example, includes within it the idea of compassion, of applying compassion, self-compassion, uh, to yourself. At any rate, this naturally arising compassion creates really an organic, you might say, natural morality in your life. You don't really need to have rules and regulations when you're in this state of mind, when you're in this state of compassion. Now, of course, you need rules and regulations for like traffic, driving in traffic and, and all that stuff. I mean, there's always going to be rules and regulations and things that you need to adhere to in society. Of course, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about it from a broader ethical standpoint. You don't really need to have A moral compass because compassion and love become your natural moral compass. They will keep you from doing bad things to people. You won't be killing your neighbor if you're compassionate for them. You won't be treating them badly even or stealing from them or doing anything negative to anybody. Because you don't want them to suffer because you feel this compassion and love for them. Why would you want to do any negativity to to these people? So love and compassion form a natural morality. And if the entire world at some point in human history did actually move into such an arena, you would not necessarily need to have the rule books in the same way that you have now. You wouldn't necessarily need to have police in the same way. You wouldn't need to have people watching over you quite so much to make sure you follow the rules all the time. Because if you act from a place of love and compassion, there's no need for such things, really, in my mind, to a great extent. This is a big hypothetical, and obviously humankind is nowhere near this place. But what I'm saying is basically that, um, you know, it is possible in some point in the future. You could say this is really insanely altruistic <laughs> or an extremely altruistic view and not realistic. But hypothetically, you you know, if we ponder it, it is possible, really, that humanity could reach this place at some point in the future, and it would be a lot easier on people. You know, there would be a lot less suffering as a result because people would have gone through the process of mindfulness or Buddhism or whatever you want to call it. I mean, you, it's it's not really about the label. You can call it whatever you want to call it. You can call it Waba Waba Wabaism, whatever you want to call it. It's just, it's, that's just labels. But the point being here is that, you know, whatever this practice is, whatever name you affix to it can give you uh, a sense of compassion and give rise to a spontaneous and naturally occurring compassion and love. And this could be an end to suffering because the end of suffering leads you away from craving and desire toward the sense of compassion and love. It's the antidote to it, you might say. Now, there are people in the world that promote these kinds of ideas. We know them. We've heard them. And uh, we we know the the Gandhis and the Martin Luther Kings. Uh, We've heard the Dalai Lama, probably some of you, most of you, perhaps. We know these people. These are the people that promote this kind of thinking. And in my view, we should, I think, listen to them and follow them and listen to them it would be a good idea in my opinion uh so i'll leave the podcast at that for today i really appreciate you listening as always i love talking about these topics i sincerely do hopefully you get something out of them i i certainly really do get something out of it and i appreciate it so thank you very much and i'll talk to you soon bye bye